Hi everyone, welcome back to Invested, where we talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning, and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought-provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. On this episode of Invested, we are delighted to be joined by Jay Steinacker and Sarah Clegg. Jay and Sarah are with Union Bank and Trust's College Savings Plan and have collectively worked in financial services for 50 years. Union Bank serves as Program Manager for the Alabama, Illinois, and Nebraska state-sponsored 529 College Savings Plans that combined have over $27 billion in assets and nearly $1 million investor accounts. With education expenses steadily increasing over the past 30 years and total U.S. student loan debt soaring to $1.4 trillion, saving for college is as sensible as it is critical. For parents and grandparents who wish to help their loved ones cover education expenses, 529s prove to be a viable solution that comes with many benefits. Tune in as we discuss what you need to know about 529s, how they work, what is considered a qualified education expense, and some additional potential tax and estate tax benefits that come along with them. Off we go. Welcome back to Invested. We are joined today with Jay Steinacker and Sarah Clegg. Jay and Sarah are with Union Bank and Trust's College Savings Plan. Today, we are going to talk all things 529s. So let's get started. Hi, Jay and Sarah. Good afternoon, Sarah. Sarah. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. We're looking forward to an insightful 30 minutes. (laughs) So um, I I understand a fun fact that you're both alumni of University of Nebraska. Did you go to the same campus? I believe so. I was in Lincoln. Were you, Jay? (laughs) Yes. And, And you can tell with the addition of gray hair that I actually went to UNL when Nebraska had a football team. The last 20 <laughs> years, we've been struggling a little and maybe a little wider on the, on the football quality, but it will come back, Sarah. <laughs> so Jay and Sarah, our practice is very planning driven. Uh, the majority of our clients have a financial plan and that allows us to prioritize what's important to them and ensure all their goals and milestones are being met along the way. So normally how it goes, is we'll discover clients have children or grandchildren and begin to talk about education expenses, if covering those expenses are important to them because they're not always, uh, and how to best save for it. So one of the potential vehicles used as a solution is a 529. So let's start with the basics. What is a 529 and why are they used? Great question. Thank you, Sarah. And I I think when people look and when they're working with their investment professional, that overall financial plan, first and foremost, saving for your own retirement is essential. But a lot of parents, grandparents, uh, the second thing they're looking to do is help and invest in that next generation, whether it's a child or a grandchild. And when you look at 529 plans and we use that terminology, but it's it's just the section of the tax code that allows a lot of tax advantages for all of us as college savers. So 529s 
The federal government and state government got a lot of things right. There's a lot of complaints with federal government, state government, but here they really connected the dots and put together a very, very strong structure. And when you think 529, it's a college savings program for a future loved one, whether it's a child or a grandchild or a nephew, niece, or, or a family friend, there's a lot of tax benefits. And the biggest benefits tax deferred growth, and we always use different terminology, tax deferred growth is just saying that the money is not taxed while it's being invested and set aside in the plan. So no federal or state taxes when it's in the plan. And when it comes out of the plan for qualified college expenses, it comes out federal and state income tax free. So the tax benefits are phenomenal. They're flexible, we'll touch on expenses, we'll touch on what colleges are covered, but flexibility is huge. There's also, for, for those individuals that are concerned about estate taxes, there's some estate and gift tax benefits on top of the tax benefits. And it's the only place we're aware in the tax code that you can make a gift get it out of your taxable estate, but keep a string attached that if you want to take the money back or you want to change beneficiaries, you can. So for all those reasons, Sarah, a lot of financial and, and writers and the press consider 529s as the very best way to save for a loved one's college education. Are there any limitations who can open a 529, whether it be a parent or a grandparent or an aunt in my case? Um, can anyone open up a 529? Very, very flexible. And that's a good point, Sarah. We should have mentioned that, that there's no income limitations or phase out. So with IRAs and Roths and different programs, sometimes if you earn or have too high of income, you're not allowed to. That's not the case with a 529. So a parent can set one up, a grandparent can, an aunt, an uncle. Heck, if you wanna set one up for a family friend, you can do that as well. So very, very flexible. Who can have a 529? We should point out the IRS says there's only one account owner on an account and one beneficiary. The beneficiary is the future student. So you cannot have joint ownership of a 529. And that's why we tell people, hey, it's very, very important to make sure to name a successor account owner in the event of the death of the account owner, who's gonna step in and be that new account owner. But pretty much no income limits, no phase outs, anyone can establish a 529. Which is huge because you're right, there are vehicles for different types of things like retirement where you can't contribute because you're phased out of the income limitation. So that's a good point to bring up. Um, you know, we have, in some cases, we have clients that own a 529 and we have a grandparent that wants to contribute, right? Um, is it better for that grandparent to contribute to their adult child, the parent's 529, or is it better for the grandparent to establish their own 529 for benefit of their grandchild? And that one is, a, it depends. They can do either of those options. If a grandparent owns the account and contributes to their account, 
they stay in control of those funds. So if they want to take them back, they want to change the beneficiary, they can do that. If they put it into the parent's account, which they certainly can, they then lose access or control of those funds. So if they want to put it into uh, the parent's account and they completely have faith and confidence, they're not concerned about a bankruptcy or they're not concerned about a potential divorce situation, they can put it into that parent's account. We see a lot of grandparents do that so they don't have to worry about it and track it. But we also see some grandparents that say, no, I still want to track it. I, I still want to have access to it. So either way, there's not a right or a wrong, Sarah. My, my parents opened a 529 for their grandchildren. And part of the reason why they did it was to serve as a legacy. So once those college expenses get paid, um, and unfortunately, grandma and grandpa are no longer here anymore, but grandma and grandpa have paid for their education and they're noted that way because the grandparents were the owners of that bucket of funds. So that's yeah. nice. We see a lot of people that it is a great legacy and a lot of grandparents are saying, hey, I don't want to give the latest computer game or the latest fad gift. I want to invest in my grandchild's future college education. So we see a lot of grandparents either contribute to their own account or contribute to the parent's account for those exact reasons you mentioned. So contribution limits, they change every once in a while, and that's based on annual gifting limitations. Can you go over what our 2022 contribution limits are per person, please? Do you want to touch on that, Sarah? Sure. Yeah, so Sarah, I think what you are alluding to is the annual gift tax limit, which this year increased from $15,000 to $16,000. So any individual can gift up to $16,000 per year to another individual without any gift tax ramifications. Um, so if we continue down the example of grandma and grandpa having an account where, like Jay said, only one of them's owner, maybe grandma's the owner, but grandma and grandpa could each contribute up to $16,000 per year for each of their grandchildren that they might have an account for. Um, the 529 plans have a much higher overall limit and it really varies from one state's plan to the next, but you might see anything in the neighborhood of $400,000 and up for the overall plan limit. So gift taxes are certainly something to keep in mind. Um, and that, that $16,000 per year limit. But if someone wanted to gift more than that, um, they certainly could up to the plan limits, which like I say, it said vary from one state to the next. 529s also have a really unique provision that allows funding of up to five years worth of gifts up front. So um, that $16,000 times five years is $80,000. Grandma could gift up to $80,000 all at once without having to have it count against her lifetime gifting limit. Um, and they'd want to work with a, a tax professional to make sure that gets reported to the IRS correctly because it is such a unique provision to 529s. But there are some really great opportunities to super fund these types of education savings accounts as well. Absolutely. I would imagine, not I would imagine, I know that compounding is a big benefit of the 529. So the sooner the funding can get into the 529, 
the better because there's more time to grow and to Jay's point, grow tax deferred, um, which I think is a huge benefit of owning a 529. Um, you know, a lot of our clients are in California and Hawaii. So, you know, we don't necessarily get to share in the deductibility of the contribution. Um, so a little womp womp for those states, but can you share um, for those individuals that do live in a state that allows for the deductibility, kind of what that looks like? I think the last we've looked, there's about 35 states that allow either a tax deduction or a tax credit. So the majority of states do, but there are half a dozen or a dozen that have no tax deduction or no state income tax deduction. And as you alluded to, Hawaii, California, if you live in those states, you want to count on your investment professional at the RAND Group to determine what is the best plan to invest in. Now, there's some states, if you're a New York resident and New York has a nice tax deduction, and a high income tax rate, you probably look at the New York plan. But in California, Hawaii, it's kind of an open slate and a lot of states are that way. You're then counting on your investment professional to review the, the, the investment structure, the cost structure, the underlying investment funds and monitoring because there's, I think the latest count is in the 90 to 100 to 529 plans out there. So you really wow. need somebody that can provide that expertise to kind of analyze what is the best plan in your situation. Absolutely. So let's paint a picture. Graduation season is upon us. High school seniors have agonized over their college applications. They've heard back and they've been accepted to their dream school. We celebrate their achievements. And then parents have this oblique moment, enter or whatever <laughs> bad word you want to there, um, where the cost of tuition, room and board, and books start to sink in. Uh, they have some savings. They have this 529 thing that they've been saving to for years. Now what? How can the funds be used uh, to pay for college? Sure. Yeah, so the the first thing to consider is is the that dream school, that college that the student's been accepted to considered an accredited institution. Most colleges and universities, as well as community colleges, trade schools, vocational schools are considered accredited for this purpose. But once we've checked that box, then um, really the funds can be used for the big ticket items associated with attending college. So of course, tuition and any fees associated with um, the program they're enrolled in. Room and board is considered a qualified expense if the student is enrolled at least half time. So that's the only list of qualified expenses that has that additional caveat. They need to be enrolled at least half, half time as determined by the institution they're attending. Um, but like you said, Sarah, books, supplies, any of that mandatory equipment, computers, internet access are all considered qualified higher education expenses for purposes of using the funds that they've built up in the account. And, and Sarah, they also added, what, apprenticeship programs in the last couple of years, and a lot of programs allow up to $10,000 of student loan repayments, so one time wow. per beneficiary or sibling. So very, very flexible on the expenses yeah. that you can use the funds, and it is alluded, one-year, two-year, four-year, public, private, trade, vocational, technical, graduate school, 
foreign schools. I think aren't there 400 some foreign schools? So very, very flexible, not only the fine schools in California or Hawaii, but across the country. So very, very flexible when you go to use those funds and a whole laundry list. The expenses we get the questions on, what about <clears throat> transportation? My student is going from California, they're going back east or going down south. Is, is the airline or, or the train or Amtrak ticket an, a qualified expense? It is not. So the IRS says mm-hmm. no uh, on transportation. The other big one we get, well, what about personal expenses? That is no also. So Sarah kind of rattled off what are qualified expenses. You really need to stay within those lines that the the IRS provides us. What about equipment or laptops or calculators? Do those things qualify as um, a qualified education expense? They do. So computers and related peripheral equipment, like a printer, Mm-hmm. might be an example of that, as well as some software packages and internet access are all considered qualified expenses. Say you needed a, a special financial calculator for your intro to finance class. If it's required for the enrollment in that particular course, then that's also considered qualified. And the other things we see on the equipment that's a little unique, maybe somebody's going to cooking school and, and they need uh, different equipment for the cooking school that would be an eligible expense. Or maybe they're going to be a diesel mechanic and they have to get tools. Those also are covered expenses. So not only the traditional four-year type education, but also trade and technical school, those expenses, apprenticeship program expenses are eligible expenses as well. And then logistically to actually withdraw the funds, um, they would call either our team to facilitate it or call the 529 plan provider and just specify the dollar amount that they needed and then kept, keep the receipts on file for their tax person. Correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and that's, that, that's a good point, Sarah, that it's important that they keep the documentation. So if they called us on one of our plans, we'd say, yep, we'll send you your 20,000 or whatever amount they request. We don't request any supporting documentation. So it's really the honor system, like a charitable contribution. We tell people, keep those invoices, keep those expenses electronically or in your tax file in the event you're ever audited by the IRS down the road. It's important to have those. And the other thing, make sure you match up expenses and withdrawals. So if you buy a laptop, say in November out of your personal funds, that's fine. And you want reimbursed by the 529, get that reimbursement from the 529 in the same calendar year so you don't have a mismatch with the IRS and they say, no, we're not going to qualify that. So if you paid for the laptop out of your personal money, that's fine in November. Make sure that same taxable year you're taking the withdrawal, the reimbursement withdrawal out of the 529 same calendar year. Thank you for bringing that up. That's often a question that our clients pose is, is there a statute of limitations? How quickly should I be, you know, processing the withdrawals? Oh shoot, uh, you know, I forgot about, you know, processing a withdrawal for this expense last month. Is that okay? But I think a good rule of thumb is keep it within the same calendar year to keep it clean. Um, you know, there's not a 529 police, but we also don't want the IRS knocking on our door. Um, so 
Keep the documentation. <laughs> good advice in all cases when you're dealing with the facts and authorities. Uh, so, you know, as graduation's coming and, and parents are trying to figure out, you know, how are they going to source the funding for college, um, there's something called FAFSA. Um, FAFSA is free application for federal student aid, and the general window for FAFSA is October to June 30th. So we're coming, what, two more months, I can't believe we're already in May, um, where the window for FAFSA is gonna close. Um, I wanna uh, debunk a myth buster that we have here. Um, will having a 529 affect a student's eligibility to receive financial aid? Great question. Minimal, minimal, minimal impact. You're better off saving and a 529 gets favorable uh, financial aid treatment. So you're exactly right. Parents, if you've got a, a junior in high school, it's, it's October of the year prior that you're doing that October 1 type filing of the FAFSA. Even if you don't think you're going to get financial aid, still complete it because the college, the institution may have different aid. So it's important to complete. What's going to impact financial aid most, it's not assets it's the income of the parent. So the, the federal government, Department of Education has a, a, a calculation they do, you enter in your income and your assets, but income has a bigger impact. They factor in 22 to 47%, 47% of parental income into that calculation. It's only two to 5.64% of assets. And when I say that, that's a little technical. <laughs> a lower number is better. So if they're only factoring in 5.64% of a 529, that has very minimal impact on the financial aid award that your student or child may receive. Are there differences in that calculation if a parent owns the 529 um, versus, let's say, a grandparent or an aunt or a non-parent? That's a great question, Sarah. And, and we see a lot of grandparents save into 529. They should continue to do that. But once they get close, maybe they have a sophomore in high school, a couple of options. Maybe they change the ownership to the parent to get it moved over so it's treated as a parental asset which gets favorable financial aid treatment. So if they have confidence and trust in that parent, the grandparent can change ownership over to the parent. Or maybe the grandparent has 10, 20, $30,000 in their 529. Maybe they pay the last semester or two of college expenses because there won't be another financial aid form filed. So grandparent owned or third party, it could be an aunt, uncle or somebody else. There's just a little bit different planning at the tail end, but grandparents should definitely continue to save. They just need to meet with you, Sarah, and the professionals at the RAND group and say, hey, what do I need to be doing? Or you'll proactively be telling them, hey, we need to consider changing ownership to the parent or we want to pay that last semester or two or three of college expenses. So a little coordinating 
but not difficult at all and certainly not a hurdle that grandparents really need to continue making that great investment. Great. Um, so what if, you know, what if there is money left over in a 529 or let's, for instance, what if, um, you know, my child is brilliant and they got a scholarship, whether it be academic or athletic, um, are they penalized for having, you know, a balance, but getting this benefit from the institution? Sure. Yeah, lots of choices in that situation. And that's where the 529 can offer a lot of flexibility to families. So if the oldest child in the family, for example, opts not to go to college or gets that scholarship, the beneficiary on the account can be changed to a family member. So if there's younger siblings, that certainly counts as a family member. But the definition is broad. It extends to um, cousins as well as um, like the mother and father. Or yeah. so if the if mom was going to go back to get a graduate degree or something, you could change the beneficiary in that direction. So it's kind of up and down the family tree as well as extending out to first cousins of the original beneficiary. So, so it's flexible in that sense. Um, you know, if there isn't someone to change it to, or if they've got accounts for all the other kiddos and they're set already, they can leave the funds in the program, um, allow them to continue to be invested, hopefully grow, and maybe name a new beneficiary at a later date. Maybe that original child has their own children at some point in the future, and now this becomes more of a legacy asset. So that's certainly an option. Is there any penalty, Sarah, if uh, a client does a distribution, but it's not for a qualified education expense? What are the ramifications there? Yeah, that's a good question. So if, um, yeah, as the owner of the account, the parent, whoever has that control, they can access the funds at any point. And if they opt to take the money back out for something other than the qualified expenses, um, there is a... Uh, 10% penalty on any earnings, as well as ordinary income tax, typically at both the state and federal level on the earnings in the account. Um, you also mentioned your your brilliant student who got the scholarship. <laughs> um, and, and that, that wasn't me, just to be clear, but you know, my niece is perhaps one day, someday. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, there is a provision that allows for um, a non-qualified a non distribution in the event of a scholarship um, where that 10% penalty is waived. So junior gets a $20,000 scholarship. You can withdraw $20,000 from the 529. Those earnings are still taxed, but the 10% penalty is waived. And, and scholarships, I know Jay mentioned this earlier, but scholarships are oftentimes when we see people lose track of matching up distributions in the same right. year because yeah. um, we didn't need the money. The kid got a scholarship. That's great. So we left it in the plan, let it grow. And now four years later, we've got this excess. Can we then take that money out and reimburse ourselves from the, for the scholarship that was awarded way back in freshman year? And that's where we would definitely caution people to match those expenses up in the same calendar year to make sure that we're following the rules and avoiding that 10% penalty in the event of scholarships awarded. And I might just add, Sarah, the thing we're seeing some families do that if they have excess funds left over, it truly is, as Sarah mentioned, a legacy asset that leave it in the plan. You might get another 20, 25 years of tax deferred growth. You then maybe split it. You have three grandkids or five grandkids. You split it at that point. 
but all along there's no time limitation. It's growing on a tax-free slash tax-deferred basis. And to your point earlier, Jay, it's out of the estate, which I think is also another huge benefit. Yes. Okay. Well, you mentioned, Jay, that there's over 100 plans. So how should one look at 529s and like, what are some of the factors um, that should be analyzed to determine which 529 is the best um, for the owner? There's a couple of different directions. One for the do-it-yourself investor that does everything on their own and they maybe do their own taxes and they do their own investing. The, across the nation, there are what are called direct sold, direct to consumer plans maybe a little lower cost because you're doing all the work on your own. So you can do all the analysis, determine what plan you want to go with and invest in a direct sold. Or if you have a trusted financial professional, you can work with them. And a lot of times they do the homework behind the scenes like the RAND group, determining, hey, what is the investment structure? Are they solid investments? Do they have good diversification and asset allocation? Is it fairly priced? Does it give us the options we want? And a lot of people say, hey, I'm going to trust my financial advisor. They do my retirement. They do my other uh, investing for me. This is just another part that they can fit into my overall financial plan, how it fits with my other investments and assets. So we see a lot of people say, hey, I'm going to pay slightly more, uh, but that's for the investment professional, that's for the expertise, the guidance, the hand-holding that that investment professional brings to the table. So two different alternatives for investors, and there's not a right or a wrong, it's whatever the individual is most comfortable with. Oh, wonderful. This has been so great. Thank you guys for being here. Um, You've been so generous with your time. We are so thrilled to be um, hopefully aligning this podcast with a 529 day, May 29th. Um, So thank you again, both Jay and Sarah. We really appreciate it. And um, we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much, Sarah. So that's our episode for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this topic interesting or useful, please let us know. Or if there are other topics you'd like us to address, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for being invested. The RAND Group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Rand Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Rand Group and Hightower Advisors LLC 
assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.